You're listening to Public Procurement Unpacked, a podcast episode brought to you by Corruption Watch. I'm Tharun Pillay, legal researcher at Corruption Watch. Today we're talking about public procurement, about what it is, why it's at the heart of the fight against corruption, and how you can help to monitor it. Be sure to listen to this episode in conjunction with our sister podcast, Sondo Commission Unpacked, to get a holistic image of the role public procurement played in the capture of the South African state. This episode is built around three conversations with Karam Singh, Executive Director of Corruption Watch, Mapea Fosiseni, Corruption Watch's data analyst, and Professor Kio Kino, head of the African Procurement Law Unit, Professor of Public Law at Stellenbosch University, and one of South Africa's foremost experts on the intricacies of public procurement. Each conversation adds color and detail to the picture I want to paint today. A picture of a complex and deeply broken system whose dysfunction has cost the country billions of rand, violated people's constitutional rights, and led to the woeful state of service non-delivery that most South Africans are so familiar with today. We'll talk about some of the civic tech Corruption Watch has developed in response to this dysfunction, about the challenges we face in trying to fix a system this big and this broken, and about the fascinating history that led us to where we are now. Public procurement is a deceptively dull term. When I first heard it, it passed straight through me, leaving no impression. But if you're interested in understanding the systemic political corruption that has come to define South Africa's recent history, understanding procurement is key. Simply, the term public procurement refers to the process by which a government contracts for goods, services, and infrastructure. If a government entity wants to build a road or a power plant, to hire consultants to advise them, as SARS did with the consulting firm Bain, or to do virtually anything along these lines, they need to enter a procurement process. This is because they don't have the capacity to do this stuff themselves. So they put out a bid for tenders, choose the best one, and enter into contracts with either the public or the private sector to get this work done on their behalf. In terms of our constitution, our public procurement system is supposed to operate in a way that is fair, equitable, transparent, competitive, and cost-effective. High standards that reflect the crucial role procurement plays in a modern state. In South Africa, over a thousand entities have this power to procure. This includes every government department, municipality, regulatory board, and state-owned enterprise in the country. We'll get back to the details of how all this works later on. But for now, the key point is that these entities are regulated by a raft of disjointed laws, regulations, and issuances from the National Treasury, with names like circulars and instruction notes. All of which means that the system is really easy to abuse, Because of the immense amounts of money involved, abusing procurement processes is the easiest way for corrupt actors to enrich themselves. This abuse can look like forging documents, bribing administrative officials, colluding with suppliers to grossly inflate prices, and much more. Typically, this abuse means that both the government and whoever they're contracting with derive undue benefit from a given contract, while the good or service they were supposed to deliver ends up being of a poor quality if it is delivered at all. In this way, the public are cheated of the goods and services to which they are constitutionally entitled. There are some reasons for optimism when it comes to procurement reform. There is a new public procurement bill before Parliament that aims to simplify the system. And the many procurement-related findings that appear in the Zondo Commission's report earlier this year have lit fires across many parts of government, creating impetus for change. Fixing public procurement is also recognized as a key priority 
in South Africa's national anti-corruption strategy, released by President Ramaphosa in 2020. Whether these developments will be enough to fix things, though, remains to be seen. I asked Karam Singh, our executive director, about when he first appreciated how vulnerable public procurement was to corrupt activity. I joined the Special Investigating Unit in 2006 um, after finishing some studies uh, at the University of Cape Town. And it was around the time of the arms deal. There was, yeah, there was some engagement between the SIU and the arms deal investigation that I had some exposure to. But effectively, you know, it was a it was procurement fraud. And over the period, I think, between 2006 and, say, 2012, when I was at the SIU, it became clear as we looked at different fraud and corruption topologies that procurement was becoming an increasing vulnerability and area where a wide scale corruption involving large amounts of public money was being squandered and stolen through through corrupt deals over time i think that's that's come into the public domain and that's been borne out by testimony at the zondo commission but i think it was clear uh, already 15 20 years ago that particularly corruption in the procurement sector was a real vulnerability for for the public sector in the state capture era beginning i guess from around 2008 2009 is there any particular scandal that you think is like especially emblematic of this broader trend of procurement corruption that crops up anywhere, everywhere? Oh, I mean, if, I mean, I think you just need to go through the Zondo report and every single case study that you see involves some kind of procurement manipulation, whether it be at Transnet, uh, at ESCOM, at South African Airways, at Bosasa. I mean, it's almost a common thread throughout all of the different uh, uh, case studies that Zondo dealt with uh, that you see wide scale and, uh, you know, different different kinds of manipulation of the public procurement system, you know, really in, in you know, structured, uh, uh, well thought out uh, corruption schemes where money's siphoned off, you know, ultimately offshored. I mean, the, the testimony from Paul Holden at the commission was something like, 49, 50 billion rand lost as a result of state capture. And a lot of that was as a result of of dodgy procurement deals. Given this immense vulnerability, it's crucial that the public keeps track of how the government spends its money. This is a hard, perhaps impossible task, but the development of certain technological tools has allowed civil society to make important strides as various online platforms that enable procurement monitoring have been developed. One example of this is the Keep the Receipts website, developed by the civic tech organization Open Up during the pandemic. Another is Corruption Watch's own tool, Procurement Watch, which aggregates certain data on deviations and expansions from the National Treasury website and presents it in a format that's easier to search and interpret. These terms are a little technical, so let me explain. A deviation occurs when an entity deviates from its prescribed procurement policy, while an expansion takes place when the value of a contract is expanded after it's been concluded. While there are a lot of legitimate reasons to make use of deviations and expansions, they are an area of high risk when it comes to corruption, as they can be easily exploited. If you'd like to learn more about this tool, see the trend analysis reports we produced using it, and gain access to it yourself, please do visit the Corruption Watch website. For more details on how the tool works and on its limitations, here's Mapefo Saseni, Corruption Watch's data analyst, who has been helping to develop and maintain the tool.
my involvement in the Procurement Watch tool is to basically update the Procurement Watch tool through a series of steps, but basically uploading the latest data that has been released on the National Treasury's website onto the tool. Right. So what maybe you can talk a bit more about what what does that process look like? Like what what is the what form is the data in when you find it on the website and what 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 is the input and what is the output? Right. So without getting, you know, or sounding too technical, after collecting the data from the National Treasury website, which comes in PDF formats, I scrape the PDFs and save them into CSV files. I do this for every quarterly data that is uploaded on the website. I furthermore, you know, double check the scraped data, that is the now uh, CSV, to ensure that it is clean and ready to be consolidated. And this is where the next step comes in. Every scraped PDF, which is then saved into a CSV, gets appended or added onto this consolidated Google Sheet, which now contains the latest data in it too, gets uploaded onto the Procurement Watch tool, and that is how the tool gets updated. When we say that we're scraping the data, like what exactly does that mean? There's a um, there's an app called Tabula that I use to scrape the data. Basically, what it does is the data comes in forms in a form of PDFs. That's how the website releases it in form of PDFs. And so, what I do is I then upload it to this Tabula application, which then rearranges how the data is sitting in the tables. So it rearranges in, in, in a way in which it would be easily readable by a CSV file. Basically, the scraping part is, is rearranging of the data that's in the PDFs into a more readable, user-friendly format. Yeah, so another question I have is, what do you think is missing from the current Procurement Watch tool? And more broadly, what kind of data do you think we need to improve its functionality? At the moment, we are you know, depending on the National Treasury website to release data in order to upload and update data onto the procurement watch tool, which this causes delay. And, you know, there are also inconsistencies on the National uh, Treasury's website in terms of its publication. Some of the quarterly dates just don't check out and this tends to, you know, cause confusion. I've also noticed that they lack access to provincial and local data. So maybe looking into that, just, you know, getting access to those two, which I think are, you know, uh, vital. Could you say a bit about the quality of the data? Like, is it is it reliable? Does it all seem legit? I mean, in terms of being legit, I don't think I can really say, but uh, it, it doesn't come in you know, a clean, in a clean um, format, I would say. There has been a number of inconsistencies, you know, small mistakes that I've seen through the scraping process. Just like minor things, though, just like um, typos, things like that. Some of the dates there in the data are either not complete. For example, maybe someone wanted to, you know, write 2011, but there it's just... 201. So you don't really know which year that was. It could be any year. So things like that cause, you know, outliers in terms of when it gets to being analyzed. So that's where it gets difficult uh, because we don't always have the go-to person in terms of, okay, what was 
supposed to be the year, you know, for this data. Right, right. So I guess it's it's a bunch of minor errors that perhaps cumulatively might might make analysis more difficult. So that's how it works and why the tool has some important limits. On this front, it's interesting to understand why Corruption Watch set out to develop this tool in the first place and whether we can expect the use of technology alone to fix our problems. Here's Karam again. I joined Corruption Watch at the end of 2019 and uh, you know, in discussions early during my time there, you know, we spoke about um, you know, areas where Corruption Watch would want to make interventions where maybe they had had a, a little bit of a lighter footprint previously. And we started talking about procurement um, and, uh, you know, procurement being a big corruption vulnerability. And it was around the time that the public procurement bill had gone out for comment. Uh, this is the 2020 version of the bill. So we engaged in that process and made a quite a substantial submission and then, you know, not too long after that, we found ourselves within the grips of the, the COVID pandemic uh, and, and lockdown. And one of the things that emerged early in the lockdown was an announcement from National Treasury that, um, that you know, procurement would take place under emergency circumstances. And this is common, uh, common in, in response to uh disasters, natural disasters, pandemics, uh, government has to sort of mobilize uh, resources very quickly, they'll use emergency measures. But I mean, I think it was clear to us early on in that process that this was going to lead to problems. And it really, you know, we were really borne out by the PPE scandals that happened. Uh, and part of the analysis that we had was that as a public, it was really difficult for us to monitor government spending, um, that the way uh, resources get allocated uh, and the availability of uh, information about that was very difficult for the public to to access. Um, and then what further became clear was that government itself didn't have very good systems in place around being able to monitor spending uh, as it was taking place. We know the Auditor General, for instance, does audits, and there's a kind of audit methodology that can be done uh, in review to how money gets spent. But um, actual real-time spending um, is not something which is necessarily monitored in a way where um, there's a, a methodology approach to looking for potential corruption or, or you know, red flags for fraudulent transactions. And this is why the procurement system internationally has been an area where there's been a lot of fraud because it's people are able to push transactions through uh, that are difficult to scrutinize. And before you know it, the money's gone. Um, so that's where, you know, the whole issue around sort of can we can we develop uh, some type of a monitoring capacity where we begin to look at some of the information that um, that Treasury does publish? I know that globally, there's a lot of hype around the potential of digitization and making procurement data machine readable as a way to enhance civil society's ability to hold governments accountable. So I'm, I'm interested to know how optimistic are you about the potential for digitization to improve our ability to monitor public finance in the South African context, as we've seen in, in, you know, in places like Ukraine? I mean, I think I'm optimistic from from the standpoint of the technology and the systems, so that the fact that we could put such systems in place um, and that they could operate very effectively within uh, 
an enforcement framework, within a regulatory framework, even from the standpoint of satisfying, you know, the public's desire to be able to monitor this. What I'm less optimistic about is sort of the position of of government at this current moment in terms of really embracing open government, in terms of driving it through uh, a government systems and processes. Um, you know, we're not seeing it uh, in terms of the current, uh, sufficiently in terms of current draft legislation coming out of National Treasury with regard to procurement. We're seeing it in a patchy way in practice in some municipalities and some provinces. Um, so, you know, there's a lot that needs to be, not that needs to happen, I think, within the political space to convince, um, you know, those that, 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 that allocate resources and, and dictate policy that this is the way to go. I think once we have those kinds of in-principled commitments, you know, being able to, uh, um, it not not even develop because in some cases the systems are already developed, but implement kind of um, a digital solutions in these spaces to to enhance transparency uh, is is you know very feasible uh, and and not so unrealistic to think that that's where uh, you know where government needs to go. At this point, you might be wondering how we ended up with such a broken system in the first place, and what everyday citizens can do to change it. To answer these questions, I spoke to Prof. Keo Kino, Professor of Public and Administrative Law at Stellenbosch University and an expert on the subject. For me, the thing that really interests me about public procurement is that it is the combination of the public and the private. It's the area where you find the state entering into the private market. And that uh, brings together many interesting concepts and questions around how do we deal with the state when it acts in a slightly different context, in a slightly different characteristic, and that is as a commercial player. Um, and of course, the other very interesting thing about public procurement is that it is really the engine room of service delivery. Without effective, clean public procurement, there is no way that government can deliver. Um, so I think it's a very interesting and important area to study. If we think back to 1994, what, what did the public procurement system look like in South Africa? Was it similarly decentralized with hundreds of entities or something else? And I guess a, a, a question that attends that is when we came out of apartheid, where did we get our inspiration for our, our current public procurement system? Was that kind of developed independently or was there clear inspiration from another jurisdiction? The picture did change quite dramatically from pre-democratic system to, to where we are today. Um, and it is because in 2000, we introduced the Public Finance Management Act in South Africa, which was really a watershed in how we approach our entire public finance management space, including public procurement. And that statute uh, introduced this decentralized paradigm of um, procurement. Prior to the PFMA, the Public Finance Management Act, we had a highly, highly centralized procurement system. And again, at the time, that was really the global uh, norm. Even though we were a little bit behind developments, historically, procurement was highly centralized across the world. And that was also the case in South Africa. So you had a central state tender board that existed at a central national level 
which was the single body that was primarily responsible for procurement across the entire state. And individual departments or other entities would simply have a provisioning uh, function. That would mean that they would order from this central body that is buying on behalf of the state. So if you think practically about this, when an entity needs paper for their printers, they would put in an order to some central store that the government itself is running and that would send paper to them. And on the back end of that central store would be a state tender board that would be buying paper in bulk. Uh, so that was the paradigm. There, there was some uh, delegation into the provinces. So the four provinces had some procurement powers. And then in a very few major entities, like major local governments, the biggest big cities, as well as particular uh, environments like the railways or the defense force had their own procurement outfit. But by and large, we had this central system. And that means, of course, that we had kind of really just this one entity or very few number of entities that would procure in a very different scenario from what we have today. Our system introduced by the PFMA in 2000 is really a homegrown system. So even though you can clearly see the global trends or patterns impacting on our thinking when we designed the system. So this kind of decentralized approach. We didn't really borrow from anywhere else. We developed the PFMA on our own soil, rolled it out, refined it also subsequently for local government purposes. It is really a homegrown system. It's not one that's drawing either from any of the big international models or from any comparative state. So your central to your response there, Hugh, was that the PFMA was adopted in 2000 and this changed us towards a more decentralized system. But, and, and maybe this is just a misconception on my part, I, I had thought that the state tender boards were only done away with in 2008. So am, am I mistaken about that? And if not, what was the reason for the eight-year lag between the adoption of the PFMA and getting rid of the tender boards? We did do away with the tender boards only um, in the mid to late uh, 2000s. And the reason for that was simply because of the practical challenges in implementing this major shift in a decentralized paradigm. Because if you think about it practically, we went from a highly centralized system where every government entity or government department would purely have a provisioning clerk, so somebody that would put in orders in an internal uh, provisioning system to one now where every entity has got an SEM unit that engages directly into the market and does the whole procurement uh, process as well as contracting, contract management, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that took quite some time to implement that institutional architecture across our entire state and across all these hundreds of entities that you've you've referred to. And that was why there was such a long period of lag between uh, adopting the decentralized procurement paradigm and having it actually operate on the ground. Interestingly enough, the State Tender Board Act, that was the primary piece of legislation, a 1968 piece of legislation, is still very much on the books. And that was because it had to continue operating until such time as literally every single public entity in this country could stand on its own feet in terms of procurement. Since we've transitioned from this very centralized system to the decentralized one we now have, and since we know that public procurement as it currently stands is really fragmented, really complicated, 
and the national treasury often doesn't seem to have a firm grasp on what's happening at all of these small entities. How effective do you think that transition towards this decentralized system was? Do you think that the implementation was particularly successful? Or do you think that the problems of the system lie elsewhere? No, I don't think it's been successful at all. And I think that's one of the major flaws in our system. And, you know, if we think about current reform processes, I think it continues to be a major flaw that's not addressed. I think the decentralization of South Africa was not successful for a number of reasons. But the two that I would that I would highlight um, are firstly a utter lack of building the necessary capacity across our state. So we did not complement our decentralization shift with an up-to-scale building of competence across the entire field of public finance management and certainly not in relation to public procurement. So even though there's been attempts to build capacity train people, get the right people in the right positions, it's not been up to scale. That shows. It, it, you can't simply make this major shift, give people the responsibility to spend millions of rands in procurement uh, without building the capacity. And that goes right from officials working in SEM units, making sure that they've got the right combination of skills and competencies within that unit, but right up to the accounting officer level, where accounting officers often would not have very high levels of expertise in public procurement. And the effect of this has been that the culture in many procurement entities, in many um, entities you know, procuring, so contracting authorities, is that procurement is simply just a backroom function with very poor understanding across the entire organization of its key role in delivering the mandate of the relevant body with the result that it, there's simply not the level of uh, attention and um, resource commitment that you need if you want to make this kind of decentralized system a, a paradigm. And linked to that, we don't have a procurement profession in South Africa. So it means that there's no body that could provide some standardized training that can look at ethical dimensions within the um, community of public procurers. There's nowhere you can go to get some kind of professional accreditation in South Africa that could serve as a benchmark when we appoint people, etc., etc. And, and that's a major flaw. So I think that's one of the big reasons why this thing has just utterly failed. And then I think the second reason why um, this has not worked is that we don't have the systems to support this kind of function. So when you shift from a highly centralized or highly decentralized system, uh, you need to have very robust systems in place to keep this decentralized landscape coherent. Right? So when you say, okay, let's now procure at entity level, you can't then say, oh, well, now we're not interested in what's happening at the decentralized level. Right? From a regulatory point of view, you are um, actually now more uh, inclined to want to see what's happening at a transactional level. And that's it's harder to do because it's decentralized. So you need better and more robust systems to be able to do that. And we've simply not done that. Our legacy systems, in terms of which our public finance uh, continues to run, is hopelessly out of date. 
it just cannot serve the kind of purposes that we need it to serve, which is to have transaction level um, sight of what's happening across the entire system from a one single viewpoint. And we don't have that. We simply don't have that. More problematic, we don't even have the regulatory framework or architecture that would enable us to have such a system. So for example, there's no regulatory provision that would allow national treasury to simply force all local governments to adopt a single procurement electronic platform. So the central supply database, that is an example of such a system that deals just with registration of bidders to the state only really exist in a mandatory form for national and provincial government and not for local governments. So we have lo local governments in this country having their own uh, supplier databases simply because the law does not allow national treasury to force local governments to use the single central supplier database. And in the absence of these kind of central systems that give you a cradle-to-grave electronic tool to deal with procurement, there's just no way that you can keep coherence in the system, that you can have good transparency, that you can ensure integrity, that you can um, have uh, early warning signs so that a central body can intervene, whether that's a national treasury or provincial treasury, doesn't really matter. You just don't know until the wheels really come off and there's no service delivery and the people are out in the streets. Then you discover something is wrong. Then you send in a team on the ground to go and look at what's happened. And then you find out that there's just been no proper procurement for the last five years. Um, and I think that's another major reason why this has not worked in, in South Africa. It seems clear that one reason we have dysfunction in the public procurement system is because there is this persistent incentive to, to steal because you aren't being adequately monitored and it's fairly easy to do. I wanted to ask about the other factors that contribute to this dysfunction, but I think you've given a lot of the answer there when you've spoken about those various nested systems and how we just we don't have the architecture or the capacity. Given that, though, is, is there anything we're missing when we think about, on the one hand, these systemic, these structural forces that inhibit the functioning of the system? And then on the other hand, just like good, honest people within these systems that, that really do just want to deliver services. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, it's a good starting point um, when, when one talks about dysfunction or failures of procurement is, is just to recognize that it's not all corruption, that there's a many, many, many very honest, um, good intention public servants wanting to do the right thing. And that there are other factors that inhibit them from doing that. Um, and you're right. I mean, some of the things that we've spoken about already, capacity, systems, those are key uh, problems, challenges in our system, which even the most honest and the most committed public servant will, will find as major challenges to get through our procurement and just to get it right. Um, but I think, you know, at a, at a very general level, I would say one of the biggest problems in our procurement system is that it is just way too complex and the law's got a lot of fault in that because we've had this administrative paradigm in our approach to procurement where wherever there's a problem wherever there's a challenge something's not working as it should we just throw more rules at it so we create additional rules more and more and more 
ever more detailed, ever more strict. So our sense seems to be that whenever there's a problem, let's take away discretion from officials because we don't trust officials and we just create more strict rules. And if they just follow those rules without making any real decisions on the ground, then everything will be okay. And of course, we know that that's simply not true. At a factual level, it's not work, right? One, one only has to read one or two pages of the Zondo Commission's report to realize that this has not worked. And the reason for that simply is because such a, an administrative system where you just throw rules at people cannot resolve the problems. In fact, it adds to the problem because it makes it more complex, more difficult for people to get through the system. And in fact, it gives more places to hide for those that actually want to game the system. So until we shift away from that administrative paradigm where we think creating more rules is always better, and we start to focus on how do we get proper decision-making by capacitating people, then we will be getting on the right track. And that involves really trimming down our regulatory regime public procurement, making it less complicated, less complex. Because to be perfectly honest, this is not rocket science. It shouldn't be. Uh, so one should really just cut back on the rules, just have fewer rules, uh, and then spend your time and energy making sure that the people that are going to take the decisions within that framework are properly capacitated, both in terms of human resources and also the systems to support them. Uh, and then I think we will start to get somewhere. Um, but, you know, until we address that overly complex regulatory regime, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. And we're forever just going to be in this cycle that we're in at the moment where people are being scrutinized against an overly complex regulatory regime. They are found wanting, as is, is necessarily the case. Then we just add another layer of rules because we've now discovered some some problems, then we go through that cycle again. And I think that's a big part of the reason why the system is completely failing. So in the face of this administrative paradigm, this overregulation and this systemic complexity, what can citizens do and what can civil society do to cut back on this complexity? Who is the appropriate actor or actors within government to try to put pressure on to create change? The first thing that civil society can, can do, although, again, it's a partnership, but I think what civil society can really do is to, to provide scrutiny of what's happening. If one can get to a point where procurement data is more generally available to the broader public and to civil society and to NGOs, then international best practice has shown us that a lot of the oversight at a very, very granular level, right? So at transaction level almost, will be done by entities that's got a particular interest in a particular area. And they will scrutinize all kinds of things for you. And the beauty of that is that the system or the country really gets that free of charge, right? We don't have to pay an entity to scrutinize every transaction to see whether every public entity in the country is doing what they should be doing in terms of procurement. Those with an interest in the area in civil society will do that for you because it's in their own interest to do so. So it starts with having the data available. And of course, that is, is government's job. Government should ensure that that data is available freely, 
machine readable form, etc. But once you have that, then civil society can really step in and start to build tools and mechanisms and programs and initiatives to, to run with that data and to make sure that the right thing happens and when it does not, to alert the relevant authorities to step in. And when you can get to that level of partnership between civil society and um, the state, I think you're at a very good place to ensure that your procurement is really running optimally. So I think that's a first very important area. The other one, of course, in the immediate term is civil society's participation in reforming our systems. And South Africa, before we can really start to talk about you know, how long-term are we going to do it better, we need to reform first. That process is unfolding at the moment, and I very much expect it to unfold over the next year or two or three. And in that process, I think it is critical for civil society to come to the table and really be very vocal, be very active in, in firstly understanding the complexity of procurement, because it isn't an easy area to understand, but um, I think this is the time to invest time and energy in understanding it from a civil society perspective and then really entering the space to 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 participate in the conversation, to bring options to the table, uh, to push for certain things to be included, to be included in certain ways. Um, I think that in the immediate term is is of critical importance. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So if you you know, if you're someone like living in a community where you know that the municipal government is just not delivering, is the most useful activist step you can take then maybe in the form of demanding this data, demanding this procurement information from like your local councillors? Yes, absolutely, without a doubt. So I think I think you're absolutely correct. What we need to to do is is connect, as you say, that outrage, that going into the street and and protesting with some technical knowledge, ability, facilitation within those communities so that you can have the, the right questions asked of the right people and an insistence that there be an answer and interrogating those answers. So there's no reason within our system, if we focus just on local government as an example, there's no reason why we cannot have local communities insisting that their ward councillors come and explain to them the municipality's budget and how that budget was allocated and then how the spending occurred against that allocation in relation to that very ward. And in a practical sense, not in a high you know, spreadsheets, etc. sense, this amount of money has been allocated to fix the roads in this ward here we are. These are the roads we fixed in a real town hall kind of way. There's no reason why that cannot happen. It, it takes just a little bit of facilitation to get communities to this level where somebody in the community understands the realities, understands the questions to ask. Of course, that also presupposes that the councillors themselves understand this and are able to provide those answers. But I think that should be a given. I don't think we should have councillors sitting in local councils with no clue about how the budget works or what procurement should be. So that's another important element. We should educate all councillors. It should be a prerequisite. And for that purpose, given that our system is very much political party dominated, the other place we should put pressure 
is that parties should ensure that nobody makes it onto their list to be a counselor without having this core set of, of competencies to, to be able to understand firstly when they interrogate the municipality spending, but then also to give feedback to the community in a way that's sensible to the community. And as you say, if we can connect those dots, then we can make real progress. And then again, civil society organizations like Corruption Watch, for example, can then build on that kind of initiative to then enable communities to, to say, for example, here's an online platform, insert everything you're getting in your engagement into this platform. And we can start to aggregate the data, we can get a sense of what's happening across the country. And, and that kind of thing, I think is, is very powerful. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a very difficult or high level thing. If you think about very common practices that we've had in the past, where if, let's say, there's a new clinic that's going to be built in a particular village, then you should just have a board put up on that site the moment that this project starts to say, this is what the project's going to aim to do. This is the timeline. Here are the people that's involved, the officials, this person, this person, this person. This is the amount of money. This is the contractor. And the community walking past that site every day can have a look at whether something is happening. And when for six months there's been nobody on that site, they can start asking questions. They can call the person on that board and say, but hang on, where's our clinic? You know, why are we not seeing anyone digging um, foundations? That very simple kind of low-tech solution can be a powerful way of enabling citizens to really take ownership of what is effectively their money. It's their money and their services. Um, and I think, I think if we can get to that point, then we will make real progress in um, shifting our, our needle. As we move towards closing, I want to think about what the future of monitoring public procurement might look like. And I want to think about, and I think we've outlined this a lot already, what civil society's role in that should be. I mean, I think you've said already that it needs to be a partnership between government and its citizens so that we can effectively push for transparency and have oversight on how the government is spending the money to which people are entitled. But yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, maybe in the best case, what the public procurement system might look like in, in five years' time, in 10 years' time, if, if things go as we'd want them to. And I, I'd be interested to hear as well when you answer that, if you can draw on any interesting or inspiring examples from other jurisdictions that we might seek guidance from. My wish list for our procurement system is quite long, but let me just highlight, I think, some of the critical things that I think we need to get right. Firstly, we need to simplify. So I think what we need to do is kind of a clean slate, very simple system with a few core principles being made very clear in a practical sense, and then starting to implement that across the, across the system in a coherent and consistent way. So moving away from all these various different little nooks and crannies in our system and, and kind of band-aids to deal with this issue and then with that issue, do away with all of it and start fresh with a very simple system. And that means just a few key core basic procurement methods, right? So you've had bidding, you've got quotations, a few of those that are 
appropriate for our context. So what can we run with in this country? And again, reflecting on our earlier point about where the money is being spent. It's spent in local government and it's spent in state-owned companies. Now, those are very different contexts. State-owned companies, you can probably go for fairly sophisticated procurement methods where they spend you know, large amounts of money on, let's say, big infrastructure. Local government, much smaller spending, and the context there is not sophisticated at all. So for those two, you need different types of uh, procedures, but it's not rocket science to design them. So I think that's the first thing. Start with a simplified system. Then once you have that system, I would like that system to have as much transparency as is humanly possible. And I am a kind of an extreme transparency advocate. So I say just put everything open online for everyone to see. This is public money. Cannot see any reason why anything should be hidden in a public procurement system. I think it must just be a given that if you contract with a state, that everything is going to be open, transparent, everyone can look at it. And I think everything needs to happen in that sense, right from the demand management side, with other words, when a public entity decides on what it needs in the next cycle, then quantifying it, transferring that into a specification right through the whole adjudication process, contract implementation, payment. All of that should just be transparent and everyone should be able to have access to that. At the top end, one would want that data to be machine readable in terms of the open contracting standards so that civil society organizations can also start to build tools that can help us to do the kind of scrutiny. So I think for me, those are really first very important aspects and then build into that whole system must be competency level. So a structured way of thinking about our human resources. Firstly, just having some system, some idea, benchmark, etc. And then rolling it out. Once we know what we want and we've got a structure, a framework to understand what those are, then actually putting the mechanisms in place to ensure that it is available. And again, I think we will have to accept that our post-PFMA shift has not been successful. There was a long transition period. It wasn't successful. So we're probably going to have another major transition period. In that period, I think one would have to have differentiated approaches where some entities will have very little uh, discretion because they simply can't be trusted. They don't have the capacity or the will or whatever. And they will have to be kind of held by the hand Others will be able to run very quickly because they're already fairly sophisticated. And we will have to build into the system some kind of maturity model so that we can judge an entity and say, okay, you're okay, you can run now. Look at another entity, say, no, you're just not there yet, so we are really going to keep you very close and we're going to monitor you. That's okay. That's a transition period. And then I think I would hope that in a 10-year period, we can get to a stage where we've now got that minimum level of maturity across the entire system to allow every entity to run this fairly simple system um, effectively. And then I think, you know, from that point forward, consciously building these partnerships with local communities, with suppliers, um, I think must be the name of the game. Working in this kind of networked way is, I think, essential. So we should build the system right from the start to understand this role as a networked one. And I think that could be quite successful. 
all of this must be complemented by uh, very robust ICTs to enable us to achieve this. You know, we are in the 21st century, so there's no reason why we should be doing any of this um, in a, a manual way anymore, even given the fact that we still have many areas in this country where you know, access to online resources uh, to, to the internet still very low. That's no excuse because there are many systems that we can look to that's been able to make this transition very successfully. And that's not in any different scenario like, like ours. So if we look at our own continent, Kenya, Rwanda are great examples of where they've made really good strides in shifting to an uh, electronic procurement paradigm and on the back of that getting a lot of transparency in place not just to curb abuse but also just to be smarter about their procurement so they're able to do business intelligence applications to do more strategic procurement planning uh, with that kind of data available so those i think are directly comparable systems that we can look to but the, the, I think the gold standard in that sense that we should look to, and it, it's quite sad given what's happening in the world at the moment, but, but nevertheless, it remains a very important case study, is the Ukraine. The Ukraine has been able to build an online procurement system that's probably one of the best in the world. And the Ukraine is you know, not a majorly rich country with you know a long history of procurement and a very mature administration it's also very much a developing uh, nation at least prior to the war what they've been able to do in the way that they've implemented an electronic system i think is is the case study to look at so i would advocate looking very closely at what's happened there in terms of their procurement system and simply just copying as much of that as possible. And then another region that I think we will do well to look at is, is South America, Latin America, where there are also great examples in systems that's highly comparable to ours, where they've had massive success in building new procurement systems with electronic tools that I think would be uh, really good examples for us to look at. As we noted before, our constitution in section 217 envisions a system of public procurement that is fair, equitable, transparent, competitive, and cost-effective. Our current system falls short on every one of these conditions. Ours is a system that is all too often unfair, unequal, opaque, anti-competitive, and inefficient. Thankfully, the country is full of people fighting to fix things. This is a fight against the powerful and corrupt forces that plague government structures. And it is only a slight exaggeration to say that South Africa's future prosperity is at stake. While a lot of the problems Prof Keo has spoken about, like the system's lack of capacity and its maze of rules, cannot be resolved by ordinary citizens, we are not completely powerless. We can look for opportunities to equip ourselves with relevant information, involve ourselves in public spending processes, and push our elected officials for radical transparency. This is an uphill battle, but it can be won. To learn more about public procurement, the Procurement Watch tool, and the work we do at Corruption Watch, please visit corruptionwatch.org.za or follow us on Twitter at corruption underscore SA. You can also find us on Facebook and on LinkedIn at Corruption Watch. Thanks to Karab, Mapefo, and Prof Hill for joining me in this episode. This podcast was produced by Volume. I'm Tharan Pillay. Thank you for listening.
volume.